Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. That was wacky. Did you guys hear that? I did. Oh, wow. So now I don't have to say it because now you know. Everybody knows. Maybe it's probably in the recording itself. Okay. Um, we're going to review some more of Desert of Paradise by Seth Holzer. Um, and this will be the second half of Chapter 3. So let's see. It uh, starts at page 105. How many pages are there in this book? About, about 200. Okay. So we're more than halfway through. Um and uh, all of the delays, the recent delays in doing this are my fault. Um, I went off and, and got to have some surprise surgery. And as part of it, they do that thing where they shove that thing down your throat so you can keep breathing. And, yeah, uh, it's important. And it kind of made my voice pretty hoarse for a week. So I, I, I skipped out on us. Um, anyway, uh, moving along. Uh, uh, I'm ready to. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna if anybody's got it, before I start reading this chunk, I want to start reading from the very beginning. Has anybody got anything they want to say before we start um, starting to this? Nope. Nope. nope right. I'm good. Here's the leap then. Um, Portugal example: restoring forest fire areas. How many of you listen to the podcast? that Alan Booker and I recorded about forest fire stuff. Me. I did. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I just I just kind of feel like uh, what I'm about to read here sounds very familiar. And so mostly what I'm doing is I'm reading Seth's words to kind of validate the stuff I had to say. Um, and I and, – and, and uh, just as a reminder – this is my first time ever reading this book. I mean, I got the book with the idea of recording this style of podcast. Um, and so I very intentionally did not read it until, until now. So, so today is the first day I have read these words and it was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So Portugal example, restoring forest fire areas. Another area heavily affected by forest fires is southern Europe. The example of Portugal shows that these disasters are man-made. Driving on the motorway from Lisbon to Porto, you can see monocultures of eucalyptus and Mediterranean stone pine on both sides of the road all the way for about 300 kilometers. The whole area has suffered from several forest fires over the years and subsequently got planted with these monocultures. To do so, big earth movers drove into the mountains and built terraces onto which the trees are planted in straight rows. These trees are not mixed with other trees, shrubs, and herbs as is necessary, 
the existing biomass is pushed together and burned as a protection against fire instead of being used as compost. All right, so then he quickly switches gears from talking about the stuff that's growing and then the stuff that, like, after the fire, so post-fire stuff. So he's, I, what he's saying is, is that after the fire, you go get all the stuff that didn't burn and put it into a big pile and you burn it so it's not a fuel for a future fire. This just creates new sources for fire. Nobody even asks why the forest dries out to such a degree that it would catch fire in the first place. Any sane person can see that these measures are absurd and simply increase the wildfires. The last few decades have seen many such disasters in Portugal. In 2009, a forest fire even reached the inner city of Coimbra, one of Portugal's great university cities. The pictures looked like showing a war zone. One would think that when a large university is damaged by a forest fire, the scientists would start investigating why. Okay, so what was it, like two years ago that there were the big forest fires in California and whole neighborhoods were were totally burned to the ground? That happened last year in oh, Oregon. Okay. I thought... I thought in Oregon it was just super smoky, but you're saying, like, whole neighborhoods were burned out. Oh, yeah. There were towns destroyed last year. Oh, wow. It was bad. Now, just just to be clear, because I kind of feel like what he wrote here might not be clear to everybody, although I felt like it was crystal clear to me, and that is that the reason why – and then on top of that, when I was driving with him – Around here in Montana, up by uh, Flathead Lake, he said exactly the same thing. And and it's kind of like what, what we're doing is like we'll go and we'll log an area, pulling all that organic matter out and sending all that organic matter in the form of wood to a mill. Mm-hmm. And then uh, – but what we did is we, we clipped off all the branches – but rather than putting the branches on the ground so they could reincorporate it into the soil, we put them into a big pile, threw a tarp over them, and then in the wintertime when the pile was nice and dry, we whipped off the tarp and set the pile on fire. Yep. And this is all in the name of reducing fuel load for wildfires. So what Sep is saying is like, A, stop doing monocrops. Um, B, uh, build the organic matter in the soil instead of stripping it all away. Uh, and I'm sure there's a C in here too. But, but anyway, the, the thing, oh, and he's also going to say here in a moment some stuff about water retention la- landscapes. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of thinking like, oh, okay. So the, the clusterfuck that we have here is also happening in Europe. And so we're, it's not unique to us. I know that in Australia they had some adventure as well last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, 
any comments about what I've read so far? Okay. The monocultures are often planted right to the edge of a city or town. There are hardly any ponds, lakes, or wetlands to be seen. To see this gives me a spooky feeling. It's only a question of time until the next fire is started by lightning or torching, and the inhabitants of these towns are in danger of being grilled alive. Get away with words. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, like, oh, well, drive that point home, buddy. Yeah. Lakes and ponds restore the hydrological balance and protect towns and cities from fire. A healthy tree in full sap simply does not burn. It is that easy. If a fire starts somewhere nearby, a lake is there to extinguish it. Lakes also aid the development of a diverse flora and fauna. The moment Portugal joined the EU, it was forced to plant monocultures instead of growing food to supply wood for Europe, all simply to make money. Until Eastern Europe opened up, Portugal was the main supplier of pallet wood for the worldwide container trade. Cheap vegetables were imported, and many farmers were unable to continue with their way of farming and had to give up. Ah, all right. So um, that's a little bit of a political message, but um, Sep doesn't shy away from politics like I do. No, he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's glad to take that on. Um, reforestation after fires. What can be done after a fire has ravaged a whole area? The root systems have died and dried up. They reach deep into the ground, and the water runs along them as through a sieve. And the earth cannot hold the water anymore. Not all hope is lost. I did a consultation concerning a property of about 500 hectares near Lisbon. The ground had been sandy in the desert. The ground had been sandy and desert-like even before the fire. The owner had cut down all the burnt remains of vegetation and had piled them up in order to burn them in a controlled way as a fire precaution, he told me. After that, they would replant the forest. Due to this amateur approach to farming, valuable biomass is being burnt, leaving a desert in its wake. Then they install an expensive irrigation system and plant new trees at a very high cost. These plants have virtually no chance of survival. What else can I do? asked the owner. He had invited 18 experts, biologists, ge uh, geologists, and the, someone from Greenpeace. Nobody could offer advice. I suggested he dig big trenches in a north-south direction against the prevailing winds. 
I suggested he fill these trenches with all the remaining wood and biomass one to two meters deep. I would pile up the leftover sand and soil as walls either side of the trenches as windbreaks, about a meter high. This can be done quite quickly with a digger. It would look like waves in the ocean. Lastly, I would throw in mixed tree seeds by simply walking behind the digger and scattering the seeds all over the trenches. The seeds then rest on top of the dug biomass. The windbreaks on either side protect them from the wind. This creates a protected microclimate. The wood in the ground slowly decays and attracts moisture in the process. Rainwater seeps in and is stored in the wood and is released slowly and steadily. The decomposing biomass generates warmth that rises and thereby helps seeds to germinate. Young plants grow quickly. They get warmth and moisture from the biomass underneath and are protected from the prevailing winds at the sides. All right, what does this sound like to you guys? It sounds like a thousand acres of culture. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little confused because it, it almost sounds like he said he, you're, digging, you're digging a trench, you're putting the wood, the leftover, you know, burned plants into there, but then he doesn't talk about covering the wood with soil. He talks about piling up the soil on either side. Yeah. So yeah. it's like a brush pile in a ditch. Yeah, no, I, I'm gonna, I wanna make snotty sounds about some of the description. But there's also the possibility that there's a bit of a translation error. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, See, I, I read the leftover sand and soil, so it sounds like he'd, he'd piled it in there, um, but it's not gonna be super, um, I should say a large volume, uh, for that the wood, and so there's probably leftovers. So the idea oh, is that, right. yeah, you're, you're going to cover it back up and bury it, but then there's the leftover sand and soil that you dug out that you're now going to pile up to either side of that trench to get the windbreak. Okay, that makes sense. We're actually going to – we got advised to do a similar thing here by Zach um, because we have all of this downed wood from the big ice storm, and fire season is coming. And so it's just literally a similar thing, putting putting trenches on contour and putting the wood into the trenches and then covering it up. So I, I would like to see it piled up high. I mean, like if you're going to bring a digger in there, which mm -hmm. I guess, you know, is going to be an excavator. We're just going to use a backhoe. That's what we got. Okay. All right. I would prefer to see it seven feet tall. And, yes. And I got the, the whole thing about seven feet tall when I met Sepp in 2009. Mm -hmm. And then he did, he built a bunch of stuff, and all of his stuff was at least seven feet tall. Yeah. And, and I kind of feel like that's super smart. So rather than digging a trench, which is what I see so many people on YouTube doing or in their blogs, like, I'm in a culture. They dig down, and they start putting the wood down in there, mm -hmm. and then 
And then they end up with this mound that's three feet tall, but I guess it goes away into the ground as well. I would far prefer to see them seven feet tall right. and instead of it being only three feet tall and it's with the ground. Can right you here some? Go ahead, Julia. I was just going to say, right here, we got the awesome, the mighty, the, what's the last adjective? The mighty, the um, glorious, the amazing Sepulcher. Thank you. Sepulcher. <laughs> Talking about digging a trench. Who knew? Yeah, I think there's some images in some other places of his where he's kind of doing the trench thing, too. And um, yeah. Well, the reason Zach told us is because we're doing this in pastures, and we do want it to be a pasture. And cows don't like going up seven-foot hoogles. <laughs> They'll go over a gentle, just like he said, like it'll look like the ocean. And I'm thinking it'll look like the beach with the ripples. Is is my when when I heard Zach telling us what to do, that was what my mind's eye developed. So there's going to be grass growing, but it's going to be rippled. It's not it's not traditional hugel culture, but it's a way to take all of this downed wood and get it away from the fire. Yeah, I, mean, I only gotcha I would be worried about is if the cows are walking up onto those mounds, if there's any kind of little air pockets. With their hooves, you know, right. sink down in there and get caught. And, you this know, is true. I think that's worth horses. I mean, cows are better than horses at that kind of thing. It would be a real problem for horses. At least I'm hoping. Our cows have really short legs. I think they'll be all right. They're not going to snap their legs. We got little stumpy dwarf cows. They're like corgi breed cows. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're literally they're Dexters, so they're like Shetland pony cows. So Katie, you had something. Yeah, well, I like so much how he says they're ocean-like because I think it helps people not think of them as rows. Um, when they put in the trenches, they don't put them in, in exact stripes, but instead they put them meeting at angles and waves. But what I was going to say is I think it's so interesting that in the book he's talking about putting those trenches against the wind like so that to block the wind. And in your case, um, you were told to put them on contour. Mm. Oh, yeah, I do. I, I want to. Who's putting them on contour? I was advised to put them on contour. Really? Zach Weiss advised you to put them on contour? Yeah. For the, okay. for the, so the, so the rain would go into them and not, yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I, I feel like I want to have a chat with Zach. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I'm going to say, I want to say a different thing, and you gotta you gotta make your choice of like which what you want. I I think okay. anytime you start putting that stuff on contour, you're also going to be um, creating frost pockets, you know. And so, I think that um, if you take five or ten percent of your land and do swales or hugelkultur on contour or any you know stuff like that, five or ten percent of your land doing that when you have so many acres. Is okay because there's gonna like okay to make the occasional frost pocket is is okay, mm-hmm. but for the rest of it, I'm gonna say um, <clears throat> put put the big hugelkultur seven feet tall so they're generally running downhill and that they're in wavy lines so that the 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 wind cannot get down between the wavy lines. That's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to to do, but generally still going downhill. So any Cold air will just keep right on going downhill. Now, if you want to keep the water to get, you want to convince the water to soak in, 
then it's kind of like you can make some little terracey things here and there. So that way, and then they might even have like a little back terracing. So that way the water will soak in and not just run straight down. The water will puddle. Mm. Um, but, and doesn't just go straight down. But the, but the cold air will continue to go straight down. Now, when Sep does terraces, then of course he does terraces that are a good, um, eight to 20 feet wide, but they are not on contour. They are mm. slightly off contour. He wants to end up with terraces that have wet spots and dry spots. So the terrace, the, you know, the terrace does keep the water from just running downhill the way that it used to run downhill. Uh-huh. But it kind of has a little bit of a back slope. Oh, so okay. that way. So I that saw way, that. Yeah. But then I, at the same time, the terrace itself kind of has, uh, it changes its altitude ever so gently and slightly. So that way, when the whole terrace gets soaked with a gully washer, Mm-hmm. Then all that water accumulates more on the low spot of the terrace, and then less on the high spot of the terrace. That's true. I saw that at Tabula Rasa, which is a farm that Zach's been working on. Okay. West all of right. <clears throat> so I'm going to. I'm. I'm. I have enough arrogance, I suppose to say that I'm going to take a different position than what we just read. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, I'm taking a different position from Zach. And that is that uh, what I just read is these terraces that are, or not these terraces, these hugelkultur mounds that are about three feet tall, and they have wood below the ground level. And I'm, I'm shooting for something where there is no wood below the ground level, and the whole thing is at least seven feet tall. Well, Julia, in, in yours, is mm-hmm. there an intent to plant, any, uh, plant anything in those swales, or is it all just going to remain as pasture and mostly um, grass? We're we're considering trees, um, sort of like spaced out trees for silvopasture. But uh, and wouldn't the trees be planted just below, just downhill of that swale mound that gets created? So I'm just wondering, would there really be any kind of frost pocket for the trees if the the cold air settles into the swale itself, but the trees are slightly downhill of that? So any cold air that would actually hit the trees would be continuing downslope. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. So as far as cattle, with my seven-foot-tall design, mm-hmm. um, uh <clears throat> I kind of feel like we make the sides steep enough, the cattle, for the most part, will not go up those sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Sep is a powerful advocate for nice, steep sides to those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. So, um, so like, you know, this, like the steepness that you see when you're here at my place. Yes. Um, and uh, um, it's like if a, if a cow got up there on the top, it's like a... You know, I I don't know. I'm not too worried about it. Um, <laughs> I also kind of think that, like, before we came and smoothed everything out, the land that was here 
was very lumpy, bumpy. It would be difficult for us or for cattle to walk across it. Uh-huh. Um, and on top of that, uh, like when I lived with my granddad, granddad, we had 500 head of cattle and uh, that we took care of. And that was very steep country. Uh, like, like so steep that it, I, it was challenging for me to walk on it in some parts, but the cattle had no problem. And of course, we've all seen goats, you know, walk on some stuff that's like, you know, it seems almost oh, crazy. vertical. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I'm not saying cattle are like goats, but I am saying cattle are like goats. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I kind of, um, I'm, I'm not, too terribly concerned about them hurting themselves. Um, the next thing is is that um, you know a good hugel culture is going to last in your area. It's going to last ten or fifteen years. In my area, it's going to last thirty or forty years. Mm. Um, and so, but I I kind of feel like your needs will change, and what you're growing in those is going to change. And you want to have a lot of diversity in those. And so, yes, trees. Trees are a very good idea. Um, and uh, so it's not going to be always pasture. Mm. And it's going to hopefully evolve to be so much more as the years pass. So I, I still feel like the general recipe is largely the same. Lots and lots of Google culture is what I think, especially – now, right now, your issue is is that you've got all this downed wood, and you're worried that it's going to uh, become this um, uh, wildfire fuel. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, if it's got good contact with the earth, then it's gonna um, it's gonna start to rot already. It's gonna hold a lot of moisture and start rotting. The problem mm-hmm. is, is when part of the wood is up off the ground. Right. Now it's it's drying out. And, and a lot of it is that way because it's conifers and they've fallen over. And so they're kind of up on their branches. Right. Off the ground. Right. And, and so in that way, it does become potential fuel. And, and it's like, but of course, in 15 years' time, um, it'll merge with the ground much better. Mm. And of course, you have a chainsaw. You can accelerate that merging if you choose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it could be that um, what I end up doing is taking all the branches off of these and doing the dig and bury thing with the branches and leave the the trunks where they are because I can't move them. Well, that's another, what I was going to suggest. Yeah. Another Just possibility is that you go next to it. Like, like, let's say there's a big log, and it's up off the ground like a foot. And then um, you can go in there with an excavator, and the excavator kind of breaks off the branches that are sticking up in the air. And then you dig next to the log, Mm -hmm. and you dump soil on top of the log. So now you've done the thing that you're looking to do to get soil on the log, but, but by... Burying wood three feet deep, and by digging down possibly three feet deep next to the log in order to be able to bury that log, mm-hmm. you end up with something that's kind of, sort of, in a way, 
with if you know with the mighty power of uh, Einstein's relativity, it's like it's six feet tall. Kinda, yeah. Kinda. And so if you did a whole bunch of that here and there, and then the other thing is, is it's like, well, these logs are not laying in a way that makes my hugelkultur. Well, your excavator. Well, actually, you're trying to use a backhoe. You're trying to use a back digger. You don't. I don't. I, I doubt you can dig it up. But you might be able to use your tractor to kind of move some logs around. Mm-hmm. But then. Um, well, where these logs are, my tractor can't go. So we're talking about using a winch to sort okay. of grab things and pull them up into the. So the pastures are on the least sloped parts of the land, and then the the slopey parts of the land are forested. Okay. Make sure you've got a snatch block. Okay. To keep, yes. Okay. So snatch block is kind of like, um, it's, it's kind of like, it looks like a pulley, like a single pulley wheel. And mm-hmm. so you're like, I want that log to move to the right 10 feet. Um, but I can't get down there to do that. So you put a snatch block down there somewhere that's placed so that it's to to where you want the log to go. Oh. And then you run a cable to the snatch block and then up to where you can pull. And then it pulls the log in the direction you want to go. And then you're going to just you're going to attach it really low to an existing tree where that because that's where the tree is the strongest. Okay. All right. And then you're going to pull and so that works extremely well. Snatch block. You want one. I'll, I'll put that on the list. Here, yeah. let me make a note. <laughs> I want one, and I don't even have a big tree. <laughs> All right. I uh, I have nothing further to read, because I'm trying not to read too much, because we want everybody to go buy the book instead of us reading the, you know, too much of the book in. Um. But does anybody, you start talking about reforestation with pigs, how to work with pigs. Um, I'm, I've got some stuff to read on page 110. Does anybody have anything before page 110 that they would like to read or share or talk about? Well, I, I like the pig things. We're, we're doing that a little bit, scattering food where we want them to dig. Yeah. They've yeah. been doing that for us. <clears throat> Um, after the first round of digging and churning, I scatter the mixed tree seeds, but the pigs can be allowed to continue in the same area. They will eat some of the seeds, but will excrete them as well, which is actually quite good for most seeds, as they will germinate more easily after having traveled through a pig's stomach. So for a lot of perennial seeds, uh, in order to be able to germinate, they need scarification, which is a form of emulation of having passed through the innards of some critter, oftentimes a bird. Like there's some seeds that, like, like for example, an apple. An apple has a lovely fruit, and then it has these rather hard seeds. So if a pig were to eat an apple, the seeds from the apple pass through the pig rather well. But, of course, uh an apple seed doesn't need scarification in order to germinate. Mm-hmm. It just needs cold stratification. But perennial seeds oftentimes need something more than what annual seeds need in order to be able to germinate. And, and a lot of them need 
scarification. Uh, sometimes people will literally scratch the seed to emulate scarification. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other people will boil them or pour boiling water on them. Um, so there's there's a variety of, of tricks, and, and some seeds perform better with one technique or another. But now we're getting into, you know, perennial propagation stuff. It's important to ensure that the pigs have enough water to drink. They create their own wallows, bit by bit, a new, diverse and productive flora and fauna develops. A new and beautiful edible forest develops with the help of the pigs. Even in areas that would otherwise be difficult to cultivate, pigs are especially helpful in challenging areas like mountainsides and wetlands because these areas cannot be cultivated with machinery. So now he's got this cool little artwork below, kind of showing uh, somebody out there dressed really sharp in overalls, <laughs> pitching seeds around the ground, and then there's the pigs coming in, they're rooting around for it all. And then by the last image, the landscape is dramatically changed. It's, it's less brush and more trees. So, although it does look like that, that third panel might be something a bit more annual. Right? Yeah, the third panel, there's corn growing and and looks like beets or turnips or something. I think those are the seeds the pigs didn't get when they came yeah. through. Yeah. And sunflowers. Yeah, so annuals and then followed by perennials, fruit trees. Well, I think he talks about mixing in some annual garden vegetables to that seed, so that would be what we're seeing in panel three. Yeah. All right, so around the panel it says, in order to sow the forest, I simply take a bucket full of seeds, oak, beech, chestnut, cherry, pear, fir. Oh, wow, there's a, there's fir in this list. Ash, hazel, and various fruit Berry bushes, all mixed. There is no need to sow them in rows and at regular distances. I always sow five or six together, just the way nature does. I can make a hole in the ground with a stick or simply scatter the seeds onto the rough ground left by the pigs. The rain will wash them into the ground. Now the seeds simply wait for the right conditions to germinate. This depends on the climate, warmth, and moisture. I'll get strong and independent plants this way. Watering and further composting is unnecessary, but I need to protect them from game, goats, and sheep. Otherwise, they would be eaten. Everything grows mixed together. Many forest experts say that plants compete too much for light nutrients with this method, but just watch what nature does. The opposite is true. They support each other. Together is better than alone. Just walk through a forest and observe how nature works. The weaker plants are supported and protected by the stronger ones. The denser plants... Grow on the edge of an area 
The better protected are the ones in the middle. Game simply cannot get to them. Different plants in the polyculture require different nutrients at different times, leaving an individual plant exposed to sun and animals, as happens in conventional forestry. Makes it a lot harder for these plants. It really helps to study natural cycles and to recognize how nature helps herself. When I realized this, I started working with nature and not against it. This method enables me to restore and heal whole areas without much effort. And that is the last thing I have marked for Chapter 3. All right. Has anybody got anything else? I wonder how carefully he selects. It's great that he gives a specific example of the seeds that he mixes together. But it seems like some plants really, really don't prefer to be in the undergrowth between the other plants, but then a lot of them do. So he's just like, well, whatever one is like that will grow there. Um, but it would be great to have lots of examples of these <laughs> these combinations. I, I do feel like he does make seed different seed mixes for different occasions. And it's not like he makes a seed mix and sets it aside and says, I'm going to do this later. Instead, what he does is he's like, okay, today I'm going to go lay out some seed. What kind do I want to lay out today? And he goes and he makes a bucket full of whatever he wants to lay out. So, for example, um, when, uh, when he was up in Dayton and he's got nearly a kilometer of culture beds that he's made, then he's got a seed mix that he wants to put low that's like bigger seeds that he puts low. And then he's got another seed mix that's bigger seeds that he wants to put high. And then he makes another pass with tiny seeds to go low because the tiny seeds and the big seeds, they just don't, they don't mix together well. You end up with all the tiny seeds at the bottom and all the big seeds at the top. So he makes two passes. And then, um, and then of course, those tiny seeds at the top as well. Like, but he's got different kinds of seeds because, because the stuff that's at the bottom is going to be moisture loving stuff. And the stuff that's at the top is going to be stuff that tolerates dry better. So, um, and then of course, you know, yeah, I, I would say that tree seeds would probably be better generally at the bottom or near the bottom because that's where you're going to get more moisture to kind of get a good, strong start. Step one, be expert at seeds. <laughs> <laughs> or just put them all, or just do them all, and you'll just waste some seeds. There's some of that. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, and I think he's saying like, yeah, that's going to happen. It's no big, let it, let it happen. I do know that I was a little, a little taken aback because there were some seeds that he was planting, like tomatoes. And I'm thinking like, we need to wait another couple of weeks to plant those seeds because, you know, it could be frost. And his response was, have a little faith in nature. Have a little faith that nature will wait. And it'll all be fine. That is a great t-shirt. Have a little faith in nature. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I think, I, I think, yeah, you could, you could just do whatever you want to do and see how it turns out. And it'll probably turn out just great. Um, 
I do think that you need to get at least a little bit of uh, seed-to-soil contact. So, of course, what he does is that uh, he throws the seeds on the ground, and then he kicks dirt over the seeds, and then he steps on that dirt. And it's like it's going to be um, – some seeds are going to be too deep, some seeds will be too shallow, but it's all okay. There will be some seeds that will be just right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, now I got to say, though, that like um, over there in Dayton, he was getting a lot of stuff that was coming from pond muck. So as Mm -hmm. he's building this, he's building it with some pretty fertile stuff. And then, of course, I took the video showing how well it did at the end of the summer, which it did extremely well. It was gorgeous. Yeah, it was lush. There were a lot of dumb fucks that commented to say, I just see a bunch of weeds. And it's like, yeah, because you're a dumb fuck and you don't know what plants these are. And it's like, sure, some of the plants had gone to seed, so they look, you know, a little weedy. But it's like there was also a lot of squash plants that were growing, and there's the squash. So there was a lot of stuff that was doing really well. But it's like, I don't know, it's – it. it I guess those kinds of people that don't that thought it looked like a bunch of weeds, they need their crops to grow in rows so they know that that's an intentional thing. <laughs> they can't recognize, yeah. Yeah, they don't recognize, like if there's a tomato plant right there with a bunch of tomatoes on it, it looks like a weed until somebody goes over there and says, yeah, there's a tomato plant, watch me eat the tomato. Yeah. And, and then they're like, oh, it's a tomato plant. But now you remind me of that story you had where the police ripped out the tomato plants because they thought it was marijuana. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. I'll be so, so disappointed when they get home with those tomato plants. <laughs> with the <marijuana>. <laughs> They're <laughs> trying to smoke it and they all die. <laughs> no. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Um, I, I think uh, uh, here... Um, we have not had luck like that because uh, the material that we started with was not so rich. It was very sandy, very low in organic matter. And so um, uh, this year we are working hard to um, build the soil first. So, so we've taken uh, a bunch of the cultures that are in our primary paddock next to the house, and um, we are uh, – uh, breaking it up so that each of the boots has their own plot. Every Monday and Thursday they go out and they garden their own plot, and they are provided water to do all of this. And uh, so they can get a, a lot of irrigation happening because I because the thing is that we got to build the soil first to try to get it like this, to the state that Sepp started with, with that mucky, mucky stuff that he was making cultures out of. Mm-hmm. And those were all a good six or seven feet tall. And so I'm, you know, it's like he, so he did those tall. And that was, I think, now I gotta go look at the copyright on this book. Um, 2011. Yeah, when he was, um, when he was in Dayton, I believe that was 2012. Oh, okay. And so he was doing tall hula cultures after he wrote this book. So, um, therefore, uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, 
whatever it was that he wrote here, if it, if it was a three-foot-tall thing, either it was just for that scenario or he expanded or there's certain conditions where he prefers tall versus the three-foot-tall stuff. I, I don't know. All right. Anything else from Chapter 3 that any of you want to talk about? Uh, any other stuff that's outside of this book that you want to talk about? I did have a question for you regarding the Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree. Okay. Specifically, the the dates being from October 2 to 10, are those also days when there's classes starting in the morning? Or do classes start on the 3rd and in the 10th is like a half day? Because I'm curious about airline tickets. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, first of all, I, I want to not use the word classes. So our jamboree format, which I'm really enjoying, is something where um, we're going to have multiple tracks. I, I, I can't remember how many tracks we have for the Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree. I think it's seven. I think so. And so um, that means that there will, at any given time, be seven different builds going on. And so an attendee can, uh, you know, wander around to all seven builds if they want. Or they could be, they can like say, I like this build the best and I'm going to participate in this build. And the other thing is, is that each attendee can either um, uh, simply observe or participate, or they can wander off and watch the clouds pass, whatever they want to do. Which, before I forget, I want to say that the PDC, the Permaculture Technology Jamboree, and the Skip event, our summer events, are all sold out. They're all full. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have posted something for each of the events to say something like, um, uh, if anybody desperately wants a ticket, we're, we're allowing two more tickets to be sold for a stupid high price because we will take those funds and then apply those to things to kind of expand the event to be able to facilitate one or two more people. So, mm. um, and, uh, we have one person that's doing that. And so we are going at, we, we kind of bought like, a a wedding tent. Um, I don't know how, what else to call this thing that we bought. And uh, we're going to place picnic tables inside of it. So, you know, we can, because our primary limitation is the number of chairs that we have to be able to feed people inside the classroom. <clears throat> and, you know, space is at a premium in there. I hope that in the future we're going to be able to um, <clears throat> facilitate most of the events up on the lab because there's just, you know, so, I mean, you know, hundreds of acres. Whereas at base camp, we're kind of limited to this. It's a 20 acre property, but it's, it's a very rocky part of the Rocky mountains. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. kind of, there's this three acres that has all the buildings. that's kind of already squeezed in there with parking and the buildings. And so it's, it's like, oh, well, how else are we going to expand this? And, and it's like, you know what? It's way easier to expand up on the lab. Uh, but we, we came up with an idea for how to expand. So, um, I, therefore, um, I, we're, we're, people could go and buy one more ticket. Um, 
to a couple of the events. And I think that there's still two for another, but um, I'd have to go look at the details to know for sure. But I know that we're getting to edge case right now on even that, but technically all of the tickets are sold out. Um, but there are tickets available for the Rocket Mass Eater Jamboree, which is going to happen in October. Um, and uh, the uh, the very first thing that happens on Saturday morning of the first day is, of course, we're probably going to have an hour of, like, uh, talking about the site and, you know, coordinating and whatever else, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, you've already been through that, Mark. You've been through probably a couple of times. Um, right. But, you know, the Jamboree format. So, Mark, the first time you were here, then uh, the event that you came to was a single event, and we were trying out a new instructor. And um, I thought that event went poorly. I, I don't know how you feel about it. You, you may have had a good time regardless. But I felt like... The uh, the instructor was not as strong as I wanted, and um, uh, I and I kind of I kind of feel like it's possible that people might not have been getting everything out of it that they had hoped for. Um, but you we know, also sold, we also sold the tickets for really cheap because we're kind of like we're going to try this guy out, see how it goes, and uh, so. But I kind of like the Jamboree format better because we could try out a lot of new instructors all at once. And if an instructor turns out to be a little bit weak, it's like, well, there's nine more. Yeah. <laughs> Just wander over there, you know, to the next project. Um, but I, I, uh, I do kind of – I'm so excited about the Permaculture Technology Jamboree this year. I just, I just feel like it's super action-packed. But you said classroom, and I, it's like, I don't think we it's true, right? have any yeah. class time at all for any of these. I know that one of the instructors was kind of like, no, we need everybody to sit down for a good hour and get a safety lecture before they start all this stuff. And, and I said, we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is that when you're teaching a thing and you feel it's important that they hear the safety lecture – then as a person walks up, you can ask them if they intend to participate. And if they say that they do intend to participate, then hopefully you can make a custom safety lecture just for them that's like only in a few minutes. And uh, and he's, he, he agreed that he thinks that that could work. So um, I think there's going to be quite a lot of that kind of thing going on. Um, because a lot of this, it's, it is important. But when you start getting into metalworking, it's like a little more important for those safety lectures. Right. Yeah. So, but I think, uh, I said, if you've only got three people at your thing right now, I think an hour-long thing about safety might bore them to the point that the safety lecture becomes moot as they wander away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then people will wander back when you start doing stuff, you know, so it's kind of like, this is a very different format. I'm, I'm really excited about this format. We kind of dabbled with it a little bit in the past, but this is, we're going way out on this one. Yeah, there's right. several projects for that, for the Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree that I'm really interested in, considering that I plan to be there next spring and we'll, you know, hopefully get some ex hands on experience doing a complete rebuild of some of these 
I think you're doing a rebuild of the mass and the TP is one of them um, that's going on. And I think there's some other remodeling of some of them. So yeah, yeah definitely interested in, in doing that. I've, I've built one basically out of bricks, but uh, yeah, there's more to it than that. And I'd rather have as much experience as possible before I'm up there saying, well, time to get this thing working before I freeze. <laughs> I think, so the, one of the things that we're doing is that during the PDJ, we're going to build what we call the solarium. And that's basically we're just taking the current garage, we're insulating it, and then we are taking away the garage door and replacing it with this heavy glass, lots and lots of glass that bumps out about eight feet. And um, then after that, when, the, when October rolls around, we're going to build a rocket mass heater in there. And then when January rolls around, we'll have the garden master course, and this space will be a heated, enclosed, insulated space with lots of sun that we hope we'll be able to house all people. So we're hoping to be able to house uh, a full classroom for uh, Helen Atow's garden master course in January. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, there's still tickets available for that. I am surprised. I thought. I thought that those tickets would all be sold out by now. Um, and uh, uh, but the uh, the rocket mass heater jamboree, there's still tickets still. Now I gotta say too, for rocket mass heater events, we've had some really good rocket mass heater events here that I thought were spectacular. But there were people like like for example when they were building the Cobb rocket mass heater over at Cooper Cabin, there were several people that were looking bored and I think part of it is is that it's a cob style rocket mass heater and if you go and you stomp some cob for like 15 or 20 minutes you kind of get the feeling okay I have now stomped cob I know what I'm doing <laughs> I think I'm good and it's like no no we've got seven more hours of cob stomping <laughs> to happen here and uh, people are like well it'll have to be somebody else because I'm done I did my Cobb something. So I think everybody loves Cobb for the first half hour. <laughs> Cobb is cool. <laughs> right. And yeah. then they're like, I think I've learned everything I want to learn now. I think I'm good. I'm to wander away. So I kind of feel like with the rocket mass heater, cause I, so I kind of felt like while watching this, while observing, I kind of felt like people were, um, some people, not everybody, there, about half of them were like gung ho the whole time. I mean, we had a lot my of celebrities. My husband had a great time. What's that? I said my husband had a great time when he went. Right now, the thing I'm thinking of is the time when Willie Smith was here, Tim Parker oh. was here. Oh, I mean, wow, yeah. We, I mean, Ernie and Erica were leading the workshop. I mean, I kind of feel like we had this big celebrity lineup for the whole event. And uh, people were like, I don't know who these people are, so I'm I'm bored. And other people knew who they all were, and it was like I'm in paradise. And so, um, but I'm kind of thinking like I want to make something so that the people that might be bored will definitely not be bored. And so, some of our more recent Rocket Mass Theater events, which I think Elliot came to. Yeah. Uh, we had, like, I think we had three tracks going, mm -hmm. which worked really well. And then in time, 
everybody was kind of drawn to one of the instructors. Some some people liked Uncle Mud the best. Some people liked Peter Vandenberg the best, etc. And so each each person was like, oh, this person's great. This is my this is my mentor. This is the person I was you know always always intended to learn from, kind of a thing. So I kind of feel like by offering more tracks, there's, it's even richer. And so then when everybody leaves, any any one person leaves, they're like, that was the most magnificent event I've ever been to. And so that's kind of where we want to go. I, I think another thing that for, for all of our events is, like, I want to ask the question, like, like uh, uh, I doubt we'll ever sell a ticket for an event at $5,000. But I want to ask everybody, what can we improve so that way it would be, like, worthy of $5,000? I, I hope that for each person that, that you know, paid a, a big price tag for these events, that they'll be, think, they'll be leaving thinking that it was worth two or three times that. Um, I'm, I'm hoping. So, Katie, you were probably at our most recent events. Um, you know, uh, I hope that, like, at the very least, the PDC, you felt, was um, probably worth double the price of a ticket. Absolutely. That was really valuable. I'm so glad I, I went. It, it was hard for my business to be gone for that length of time. So it cost me in ticket, but it also cost me in what I was going to be doing if I wasn't doing the ticket. <laughs> and uh, But it was still worth it. I'm really glad that I went. And the ATC that you attended <clears throat> is kind of the foundation for the permaculture technology jamboree. Although we had only three instructors, therefore only three tracks. Um, and uh, the instructors, um, one of the instructors, I think, got the idea of what we're trying to do. The other two um, were kind of coming up to speed, but, you know, on it, on what we were trying to do to, with the idea of the tracks and the plate spinning and stuff like that. And uh, and so I kind of feel like that was uh, an incubator for the event that we're about to do this year. So I I hope that um, what we do this year will be ten times more than what you experienced uh, two years ago. Yeah, the 2019 ATC that was that was a lot of fun. Just like you said, it's if there was just one thing going on and that wasn't what you were interested in or just wasn't your jam, then you could feel bored by it. But having multiple tracks, it's like, oh, yeah, I want to keep working on this or I want to go work on that more than the other one. But you could still bounce around between them. And I'd find myself doing that where I'd spend a couple hours working on one thing with somebody and then go over and like, oh, yeah, I want to do this or that and, and, you know, bounce around. So that was enjoyable. That's right, Mark. You were here for the ATC two years ago. So you yeah. did not attend the PDC, but you did come to the ATC. Yeah, I couldn't get a month off back then. So this time I had the full month off for both yeah. of us. Yeah. So, all right. So we're kind of, you know, adding some frosting into our um, podcast about Desert or Paradise to talk about the upcoming events. Um Anybody got any other so, things? So just to confirm, then, we are starting Saturday morning on October 2, right? So I should be there the evening of October 1 if I want to be I would say in the morning. I would say yes. Yeah, okay. we, we are start, starting like 8 a.m. On, on Saturday morning. All of our events start at 8 a.m. Like breakfast is always at 7 a.m. And everything starts – we used to do 
a thing like five years ago or four years ago where we would let the instructors pick what time everything started, and now we don't do that. I pick the time, and they're all the same. And uh, so breakfast is always at 7 a.m. Uh, the event starts at 8 a.m. And, uh, and breakfast is going to be, or all the meals are run with a near military precision. Um, food arrives at the top of the hour. <laughs> you better get all the food you want in 25 minutes because we're going to start putting the food away after 25 minutes. <laughs> Stuff and like that. it works that. really well, too. Yeah, we're, it's, it's a, we, we're shooting for a strong military precision on meals. Um, because otherwise the meal, the meals can run to two hours or whatever, or, or the meals will get served like, uh, half an hour, 45 minutes late. And it's like, it's hard to schedule everything around that. So I, the thing I tell the cooks now is, is, is that it's like food gets served at that time. And if you're not ready, then it'll be a small meal. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. And so, um, uh, they've been working very hard to make sure it's it's served on time. And then, of course, we start picking it up at 25 minutes past the top of the hour and start putting things away, um, which usually if people want to get seconds, they can get seconds then. But if they're if they get to visiting with people at their table, which also happens, they might not be getting seconds. <laughs> and uh, we've had people complain, and it's like, but I want that, 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 and it's kind of like, Yes, you do. And maybe you need to bring a big bag of of sacks. (laughs) Because, you know, to make sure you get all the food you want. Because we got to get this show on the road. Because we got to get everything all cleaned up in time for the event to get back on rails at at the top of the hour. And that's like, uh, this is what we have learned from history. This is how we do it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People pick it up pretty quick and, and, at least my experience was that it was very smooth and there wasn't any issues as far as people knew, you know, because they would say, hey, we're taking this. Anybody want anything before we take it away? Yeah, and you've got like five minutes to get seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I think we got people trained by the second day, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and everything. And then people are like, stop talking to me. i got to eat because i got to go get seconds. <laughs> when you're there, you can see why, because you need that space that had the food in it to do the next thing, and you need the tables and things. So it's yeah. very reasonable. Yeah. I had an idea. Yeah, yeah. When people are bored with the stomping cob, at the same time as you teach the stomping cob, you can teach them, like, you know, there's, like, the sea chanty songs and things that, you know, each activity can have, like, a song that goes by. You're, like, stomping and singing. And then, like, the singing carries you through. It becomes, like, a stompy, singy dance thing. So maybe... I actually don't know any, but maybe somebody knows one. <laughs> Ernie knows a lot of sea shanties, but I thought that the thing is, is like most people hate sea shanties. Well, so I, I don't oh, know. They went all viral. It went all viral on the internet a few months ago, and everybody yeah. was singing the Weller Man. Oh yeah, but it wouldn't have to be a sea shanty because they had they had songs like that for people who are um who are going to take. A big mass of, I think it was probably wool, and like stretch it out and stuff for for weaving. And it just there's all these repetitive tasks that people have to do, and they've come up with different songs for different activities that sort of go with the pace of the activity. Oh. And it can be call and response, so you don't have to know them. So one person knows them, maybe da 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 da, and the other person will call it that exact thing back at the same rhythm. And so it's really easy to do. And so there's there's probably a, a stomping one. Certainly there would be one. I, I bet there's a grape stomping song. Yeah. I think that is a wonderful idea. Uh, I, I mean, I can't do it. 
I will, uh, you know, but I, I hope that somebody does do it. <laughs> that would be terrific. So, all right. Anything else to talk about before we wrap up this podcast? Nope. Uh, if you like this sort of thing, come on after the forums at permies.com where we talk about Google culture, homesteading, and permaculture all, all the time. time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.